One thing the Transportation Security Administration never stops tinkering with is passenger screening, both techniques and supporting technology. Now, screening is light years from what it was in the days right after an earlier 9-11. Now it's published what it calls an open architecture roadmap aimed at improving screening performance. For details on the roadmap and its goals, we turn to TSA systems engineer Eric Rextad. Mr. Rextad, good to have you with us. Yes, thank you for having me and anxious to, to have this conversation. So tell us, what is the Open Architecture Roadmap and what will it actually do? What will it guide TSA in doing next? From Open Architecture standpoint, I think when people hear that phrase, they have a lot of different ideas on what that means. And so the roadmap itself is really focused on being that foundational document, helping to establish the guiding principles for TSA moving forward and really honing into where we want to go in, in the future. We want to get to that connected transportation security system of systems. And the methodology that we're looking towards is that open architecture methodology. And what I mean by that is going towards a standards-based approach so that systems are interoperable, getting to the level where we can build components and then bring those components together to provide ultimately a, a superior end product and end system. So the roadmap itself is focused on really the what and the why and not diving too much into the, the how and the when. So what are we going after? We're going after that connected transportation security system of systems, leveraging a standards-based approach. Will this also allow more frequent or more contingent-based updates to the systems that might be in place as different threats emerge or you discover, hey, this would shave off 12 milliseconds and that adds up to 10,000 hours of screening a year, that type of thing? Exactly. So TSA has a vision to become more of an agile agency and so moving towards open architecture allows us to leverage all of industry to bring new capability to our screening environment, whether that's an algorithm developer, a hardware developer, any of those things. So you talk about a new threat emerging. Why work with just one entity to get that? Let's work with all those software developers, all those people with AI experience, machine learning experience to tap into that knowledge and bring new capability to light. And you mentioned earlier this is not just about hardware, you know, and changing that out. But TSA does acquire and maintain a huge base of very big pieces of hardware for screening the baggage and screening the people and their junk they carry on with them, like camels. I can't believe what people carry on nowadays, but you got to look at it all. But I imagine the goal would not have to be replacing an entire gigantic machine every time there's an advance in screening technology but could that machine and the APIs, for example, be standardized such that you could give new life to an old piece of hardware that still runs? The belts still work and the flapper gates are still in good shape. Yeah, ex exactly. And you're hitting on the huge mission space that we have. So we're trying to handle over 2 million passengers a day at over 430 airports. You mentioned the equipment. We have over 2,300 screening lanes and have 50,000 officers running that equipment. And we have to keep that equipment operating. But you think of that complexity that that brings. Our officers have to deal with the variations of those equipment, the buttonology, the different procedures associated with it. Putting all that burden on the shoulders of the officers is not where we want to be. And so taking advantage of open architecture will help us to streamline that experience, allowing that officer to have the same buttonology regardless of the hardware and allowing us to tap into 
different providers of software or hardware. So yeah, to your point, it changes our kind of recapitalization to a method where we have more ownership in that refresh and can continuously be developing and providing capability to the field. Almost as if the machines had uh, the PNRDL standard that came to transmissions and cars many, many years ago. So no matter what car you drive, the next click is neutral. Exactly. We're speaking with Eric Rextad. He's a systems engineer at the Transportation Security Administration. And again, this might be putting the cart before the horse a little bit, but doesn't TSA have an ultimate goal at some point in the grand future of screening without all of the lanes and stuff where people just walk by maybe an archway they don't even be aware of and they are screened? I mean, that's not going to happen next week or next year, maybe not this decade. But does all of this lead toward that kind of ultimate goal, do you think, in the long term? Most definitely. So, again, our goal is to get to that connected transportation security system. The systems, we leverage a standards-based approach, which opens our opportunity to work with multiple industry partners, and that's in the hardware or software space. So that lends us to the ability to identify what is that new technology, and we can easily integrate it into the future checkpoint system. Uh, where we are right now is that they are completely independent systems requiring us to do a complete replacement of that equipment, complete new training, uh, new procedures, again, the complexities of the officers. So with the standardization, we bring that back together and allow for that streamlining of capability and ultimately getting to higher security effectiveness, better throughput, and the customer experience as well. Sure. Although the training's not too bad. You get a couple of weeks in Las Vegas when it happens. <laughs> so, but you know, if you get out of the hotel room very much, it's hard to tell. And getting to the roadmap document itself, it's only 28 pages. So it seems like a high-level type of thing for a standards roadmap. I mean, the Bluetooth standard, you know, would take up 28 pages of fine type. So what's in this document and what should industry take from it, do you think? It's meant to be foundational. So we tried to keep it short and to the point it's not meant to provide all the details of exactly how we're going to get to the end state or when we're going to get to the end state but again getting to the the what and the why so what is it that we're going after and why do we need to go after it we identified multiple reasons on the why we do have that critical mission to protect the nation's transportation security system to ensure freedom of movement for people in commerce with the idea or the vision that we do that in an agile way. And the open architecture roadmap highlights how using standards will get us to there. There are four goals within that roadmap, which touches on some of those key aspects of where we're trying to go and where complementary activities and documentation will be developed to outline. As far as what industry should hear from that, there's a specific goal to start providing that data pipeline so that we're providing a wealth of stream of commerce images, threat images, and engaging with all of industry partners to continuously develop new capability, likely in the algorithm space, so that we're not at the, let's just develop it and try to figure out a way to provide it to the field in some time. But every year, every couple of months, we're refreshing and improving how we're doing algorithms to provide lower false alarms to improve that customer experience or improving detection as emerging threats appear. And someday they'll be able to squirt a uh, something, a light beam at a bottle and know it's really 
suntan lotion and not some kind of horrible substance. Yeah, that's definitely one of the efforts that we have is to to improve detection of of liquids and, and using new technology. And that all plays into to open architecture as you get that sensor information. What can you do with that? And so moving away from just one vendor's opinion on how or way of doing that, we can tap into, let's take that sensor information off the machine and use it in any way we possibly can. So tap into those great minds again in artificial intelligence, machine learning, that they may be able to use that information differently than our our legacy vendors can. And just a final question, there is an external group, not external to DHS, but external to TSA, and that is the Transportation Security Lab that actually verifies what vendors and industry say they've got before and testing it before it goes over to operational deployment at TSA. Were they part of this open architecture thinking to the lab? Yeah. So there's multiple parts to that. One is we do have a specific goal in the open architecture roadmap that talks about we have to evaluate policies, processes, products, like organizationally, this is going to change how we do business. One of the things we highlight is it's going to change how we do testing. Historically, we've tested a box, so a a single solution by one provider, which includes hardware, software, and that gets certified. Now we're talking about components. And so breaking up those components and putting them together in different configurations and having to certify that. So we actually engaged with DHS S&T early on this and have been partnering with them continuously. We actually had an industry day last week with them in partnership at TSA headquarters where we brought in nearly 200 participants from industry to talk about how does this change the certification process, specifically when you look at machine learning and open architecture. All right. So you've got some work cut out then for the next few years, really. Oh, most definitely. We outlined in the roadmap itself just some high-level goals and a pathway of sort of measures of success for the next two years. But we will be diving deep into all the ways that we can bring open architecture to reality and bring that capability to the field and improve that customer experience. Eric Rextad is a systems engineer at the Transportation Security Administration. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the roadmap itself at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously 
spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Um, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones 
that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer. Right. Because I just believe that if you want it, bad enough. If you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when, and when I was born, 
right? As I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.